Hey, this is Mohal Joshi from Los Angeles, California. I follow Indian foreign policy and defense with a special focus on Asia. You can follow me on Twitter at Mohal Joshi. Hey, this is Kishore Narayan from Bengaluru in India. I am an international relations expert specializing in global security, conflict resolution, and international negotiation. My focus areas include peace building and digital diplomacy. You can find me on Twitter at Veggie Diplomat. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of India Rising Strategic Affairs Conversations with Mohal and Kishore, a show in which we analyze the happenings from around the world and their impact on India. Before we begin with today's episode, we just hope that you and your loved ones are safe at home and are healthy during these troubled times. We know that the second wave in India has had a lasting impact on many of us, and hence we want to share our concern with you during these times. Remember to stay safe and stay home. The month of Ramzan is generally tense in the city of Jerusalem. The Palestinian Arabs wish to pray in the Al-Aqsa Mosque which are situated in the walled old city. And fearing unrest, Israel deploys its defense forces to control the crowds who come to pray over there. This year was no different. However, what added to the already tense situation was the verdict about the ownership of land in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in East Jerusalem, in addition to the Jerusalem Day celebrations planned by ultra-right-wing parties in Israel. This led to a highly volatile situation, which was milked by the Hamas militant group in a rather unexpected fashion. In today's episode, we dig deep into what triggered the crisis and what was India's stand in the whole situation. By May 2021, trouble had been brewing in Jerusalem for about a month a combination of Arab attacks on Israeli Jews in the city, restrictions the police placed on Palestinians attempting to gather near Damascus Gate, which is a main entryway into the old city during the, uh, uh, during the holy month of Ramzan, and a march through the city by a group called Lehava, whose supporters chanted death to the Arabs. All contributed to the tension that had spread across Israel. In isolation, each of these incidents was not unusual. However, they came at the same time as Israel's courts paved the way for the eviction of six Palestinian families from a neighborhood in East Jerusalem called Sheikh Jarrah and for Jewish families to move into those homes. The alleged storming of Al-Aqsa by Israeli police was also not unprovoked. Many media outlets chose to ignore that the protesters first hurled rocks and Molotov cocktails at the officers stationed outside, provoking them to respond with force. Perhaps the police should have known better. After all, claiming that Al-Aqsa is under attack to incite unrest has been a regular tactic of Palestinian leadership since the inception of Israel. After this uh, was the unexpected uh, attack from the Hamas on various cities within Israel. Rocket attacks coming in from uh, the Gaza Strip um, killed a few uh, Israelis, I think about uh, 12 in total. And this led to uh, widespread uh, fear and concern within the Israeli establishment. And that is when Israel chose to retaliate. Now, the question is, why did Hamas escalate now? It is, it is important to note that there was an election due in the West Bank, which is run by the Palestinian Liberation Organization, uh, loosely referred to as Fateh. Now, um, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the president of PLO, he canceled the elections. And this gave a chance for Hamas, who controls the other half of Palestine, which is the Gaza Strip, to now upstage Fatah in West Bank. While the long-standing territorial dispute of Israel and Palestine 
is at the center of the crisis. The co-option of the Palestinian cause over the past years by Hamas has complicated things even further. Now, Hamas thinks that uh, the Fateh or the PLO are uh, hand, in, uh, hand in glove with the Israelis, and hence they really don't want uh, a complete uh, independent Palestine. And that is why ha Hamas thinks that they should actually go ahead and push for uh, complete uh, leadership change within the West Bank, and they want to uh, govern West Bank as well. So that is the context in which uh, uh, Hamas looks at West Bank. Now, uh, what they want is uh, they they don't care about uh, the electoral process or the negotiation process that the PLO uh, carries out with uh, the Israeli authorities. And all they want is uh, uh, to get rid of PLO completely and take over West Bank. Now, this led to uh, Hamas seizing the moment, so to speak, and attacking Israel, uh, simply because they wanted to show that we are the real uh, safe, uh, we are really concerned. Defenders of Palestinian cause. And also uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, correct. Uh, yeah, so, so I, I mean, there is a political angle also here that with the elections due, they wanted to upstage uh, the Fatah, like to show them they are the true guardians of the Palestinian cause. And uh, I mean, basically when the next right. elections are held, try to win more seats and control both Gaza and West Bank. Now, now the issue, issue with that, uh, uh, no elections have been held in Gaza in the past uh, 15, 16 years. So I think... Uh, 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 you you mean West Bank, right? No, in Gaza, in Gaza. So uh, okay. uh, uh, Hamas does not care much about uh, the electoral processes and winning them and uh, mm -hmm. get coming to power. So I think uh, that's something that they are not too keen about. But all they want for now is mm -hmm. to ensure that uh, there is a loss of face for the PLO. Even in the West Bank, I think the elections have been postponed multiple times multiple by Mahmoud Abbas. So even Correct. though the elections have not been held there, and this schism, I think, uh, is like to the detriment of the Palestinians because there is no single unified leader or uh, exactly yeah. movement who can represent them. Correct. Correct. Okay, so this led to uh, almost a disproportionate response from uh, Israel. And uh, this is when we saw uh, the Israeli uh, uh, defense system called the Iron Dome in full glory. So, uh, Mohan, you want to talk about the Iron Dome? Yeah, so basically the Iron Dome was conceptualized after the 2006 uh, Israel-Lebanon Israel war. Now, during that time, the Hezbollah uh, from Lebanon had fired thousands of rockets into Israel. Now... Uh, as a result of these thousands of rockets, uh, which were like short-range Katyusha rockets, they landed in northern Israel and they killed like quite a few civilians and uh, almost like up to a quarter of a million uh, had to evacuate and maybe up to a million were confined to bomb shelters. So they came up with this uh, thought process that how to protect the civilians. So they, they designed this iron dome which is basically based off three components. It's a detection and tracking radar, a battle management and weapon control system, and a missile firing unit. So what this does is it intercepts the rockets. Uh, incoming rockets, it tracks the flight path, and it uh, launches uh, rockets to intercept them. It doesn't do a kinetic uh, interception per se. What they do is it has a proximity sensor fuse. So once the... Uh, the missile is in close proximity and the fuse triggers, it explodes, uh, negating the impact of the rocket. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, like this is an expensive system, so it's not cheap, but uh, it has shown to have at least like 90% success in uh, intercepting rockets. So even though the the as we saw in the those dramatic videos, I think it was like two weeks or three weeks ago that when they were firing literally hundreds and th or maybe even thousands of rockets at the same time, the system used to light up and uh, try intercept most of the rockets. And I think that's why the casualties on the Israeli side were as low as a dozen casualties Correct. while 
I think on the Palestinian side, they were like almost like 250. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, we all saw the Iron Dome in, in all its glory and uh, the brightly lit up skies uh, in Israel was actually uh, the defining uh, picture of this current uh, conflict. Now let's get to the root cause of the current conflict and let's talk about the actual uh, vicinity uh, in Jerusalem, the locality called uh, Sheikh Jarrah. And uh, uh, Mohal, again, you want to talk about this? Yeah, so Sheikh Jarrah, it's located in the north of the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, it's a predominantly Muslim, Palestinian or Muslim neighborhood, and it was named interestingly after the personal physician of Saladin, the great Muslim general who captured Jerusalem from the Christian crusaders. Now today, Sheikh Jarrah has been home to generations of Palestinian families. So what happened is in the 1948 war that occurred right after the uh, Israel declared its independence, uh, Jordan and other like I believe like five or six nations invaded Israel, and uh, the West Bank area was uh, under Jordanian control until 1967. Uh, and in the 1967, uh, the Six Day War, Israel was managed to recapture like Sheikh Jarrah and the rest of East Jerusalem from mm-hmm. the uh, Jordanian yeah. Jordanians. Yeah. So what this did, it created a kind of a legal or nightmare in terms of who owns the land and stuff. So during that occupation of uh, Sheikh Jarrah by Jordan, uh, like Palestinian refugee families were moved into Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood and they've been living there ever since. I mean, their the ancestors and even the present day residents. Mm-hmm. Now, after the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood and the West Bank was taken over by Israel in 1967, some of the original uh, Jewish settlers started launching legal challenges to the Palestinian claim on the land. And there was a legal battle that continues interestingly till today. So uh, the, the Israeli uh, settlers say that this land was uh, originally their ancestors' property, I mean, which was abandoned during the war in 48 and was uh, taken over by the Palestinians. While the Palestinians say that... Uh, they have been here uh, and they have been like for, for decades now, I mean, from 48 onwards and now be, being forced to vacate uh, unfairly because there is technically no equivalent law for Palestinians to claim land inside the proper state of Israel, which they were forced to leave during the war. Mm-hmm. So the evictions, I mean, a lower court had ruled in favor of the Israeli settlers. The evictions were put on hold by Israel's Supreme Court which it said that it would deliver the verdict on an uh, appeal from the Palestinian uh, uh, families who had to, uh, who lost the ruling in the lower court. Now, as the uh, holy month of Ram- Ramadan drew close, there was unrest at a flashpoint in the Alaska mocks and it just pushed like the two sides even closer to an uh, armed conflict. Fair enough. So, uh, again, uh, uh, the whole issue of uh, who does the land belong to uh, goes back all the way to the Zionist, uh, political Zionist movement days, when many Jewish uh, families wanted to come over to the uh, so-called Holy Land and, again, uh, wanted to, uh, I mean, they ended up uh, getting permission from the Ottoman Turks and then the British Mm-hmm. While they were ruling the British, uh, uh, while they were ruling the uh, lands as the British mandate of mm-hmm. the Palestine, so yeah, mm-hmm. it's been quite a long. Uh, I mean, uh, it's funny that uh, in every geopolitical land dispute, there's always one constant, which is the British Empire. British. I mean, be it, be it <laughs> Southeast Asia or the Middle East, like they have the tentacles or their claws in every possible uh, geopolitical land dispute border dispute whatever you want to call like you know yeah so, they knew they knew how to how to get on to get on the tiger but they didn't know how to get down 
<laughs> I think probably like just mess up like like when they were leaving, just mess up the people who left behind. <laughs> all they would be so, worried about, yeah, all they would be worried about uh, to ensure that their interests are uh, safeguarded at any cost. <laughs> anyway, so coming back to the Sheikh Jarrah point, so basically in in 1970, uh, as per Israeli law, Jewish property owners and their uh, descendants could reclaim. uh land which was if they could prove that the land was owned by them prior to 1948 when the state of israel came into existence mm-hmm. interestingly the palestinians do do have the same right but i mean there was never a state of palestine so there is also another uh, legal complications there so as i said before the israel supreme court delayed uh saying that okay we'll we don't want to take this contentious decision during the holy month of ramadan when ramzan when uh there could be more tensions uh but interestingly the some of the settler families would won the cause case in the lower courts went to the actual site and uh, there's a like this probably now famous or infamous video of the the settler arguing with the palestinian families and i think that excavated the tensions that were already simmering below the surface regarding them having to vacate the house so um, i mean technically now if we go to the legal part of it i mean it's kind of uh, very uh, convoluted but like also like interesting for a lack of better term so interestingly what uh, the israeli court said claimed is that the jewish uh, settlers have an unchained i mean and uh, sorry i'm trying to recall the word interrupted chain of transactions from predecessors in the 19th century from the times of the ottoman empire so interestingly i know these guys are fighting today in 2021 but the story i mean if you want to really go back it starts 150 almost 150 years ago in yep. the late 1800 so yep. <laughs> i mean this this is like a never ending i mean any, probably anything in the uh, israel or jerusalem is like thousands of years ago but interestingly this story starts like 150 years ago so this uh jewish ancestors bought property in the late 1800s in the ottoman empire now these rights had carried over to the british uh mandate of palestine they also were when israel came into existence in 1948 and uh obviously the period in question is now the period between 48 and 67 when the jewish settlers were kicked out and the palestinian families were settled so interestingly uh even under the jordanian uh, i mean what i read on the so what was happened is like during the 1940 to 67 period there was something called the jordanian custodian of enemy property now as per the rules basically uh the jordanian law was that the jordanians could either extinguish the owner's rights completely if the state seized the title by eminent domain or if the custodian transferred the lease the title of the property to someone else but interestingly in the sheikh jarrah properties the custodian did not transfer the title to anybody else so that's the angle which the israeli courts have ruled that if the title never went to any palestinian family it means as an uninterrupted title right from the 1800 late 1800s to present day now there have been some cases where the jordanians transferred the actual title in west bank to palestinian families so the israeli courts interestingly have upheld the claims of the palestinians arabs that since the title got moved to the jordan the jordanian cust- the jordanian custodian transferred the title to the palestinians israelis even though they their ancestors claimed it because the title got transferred between 40 to 67 they cannot claim the land and correct me uh, if i'm wrong uh, uh, kishore this is the case correct yeah uh, that's correct yeah so it's kind of a legal imbroglio that because i mean i mean so in case if the in sheikh jarrah neighborhood the title had been transferred to the palestinians like the israelis would have no settlers would have no case as per israeli law but just because the title didn't get transferred uh 
the the tenants have a right to uh, the property. Now the other angle is that okay, so it's not that it's a complete loss for the Palestinian families. So what the courts have also ruled is that uh, I believe they are called yeah protected their status as protected tenants. I think it's even in India that if a tenant has been staying for decades and decades, you can't just kick him out, right? I mean, assuming he's paying the rent, like I mean, it could be like piecemeal yeah, rent. Uh, correct. That was the yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah, I mean, in, I mean, many countries have it, like even in India. But interestingly, what the the courts have ruled is that the 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 residents, the Palestinian residents, who are, I mean, the property might be in the Jewish name, but if they continue to pay the rent, I mean, technically, I think if I am, I could be wrong here, but they could not be evicted. But because they're not paying the rent, so they are technically squatters hmm. on Israeli settler property. So since they are squatters, they have full right to eviction. Now, obviously, I don't think the Palestinian families would be paying rent, but in case if they were somehow convinced to pay the rent, I think the court might rule in them favor that they could not be evicted. But just because they're not paying the rent and because of whatever I explained in terms of titles and leases, I mean, uh, uh, they might not be evicted, you know, but just because they're not paying the rent and they don't own the property, they don't have a title in their name. So... I mean, they have to vacate at this point. So, I mean, this was like, I mean, so, I mean, sorry, I took a slight detour, but this is the legal real estate part of it, you know. <laughs> no, it's quite important to understand that this was a mere uh, a property dispute, which ended up becoming a political yeah. uh, hot potato. But I mean, many people, I don't think many people are trying to uh, understand the the details, which... I think we have like eluded, I mean, uh, elaborated here. Yeah. I yep. mean, they just look at it at us, think, oh, person X and person Y, and person X is kicking Y out of his home. Mm-hmm. They don't care about the legal background, like what the rule is, what were the rules in the during the Jordanian time, during the Israeli law, Israeli courts. I mean, are they paying rent or are they just squatters or everything? I mean, so it's like quite fascinating. But uh, I wish like more people took an interest because it just becomes. Uh, with their maximalist positions on both sides, they're just like uh, saying, oh, oh, this X, X is right or Y is right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to take a stand here, but I'm just saying whatever I learned mm-hmm. over the last few weeks on this fascinating right. issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So uh, this is a, an elaborate take on the actual situation on the ground and uh, the legal uh, implications and complications. Now, let's look at how uh, the entire Middle East uh, looked at uh, all the happenings within Israel and also in the Gaza Strip. Now, uh, the issue for the the Middle Eastern countries, remember, uh, uh, Egypt and Jordan have already signed uh, peace treaties with uh, Israel. And uh, quite recently, in the last uh, couple of months of uh, President Trump's uh, uh, administration, uh, UAE and Bahrain uh, signed Abraham Accords with uh, Israel and there were the budding new uh, bilateral uh, ties with uh, those countries for Israel. So all this, uh, all these happenings in uh, uh, Israel and Gaza was a sudden wake-up call in terms of uh, where the relations were headed. So uh, again, uh, it created an awkward situation for these countries like UAE, Bahrain and uh, also uh, some of them had to uh, kind of do some kind of balancing because especially for a country like UAE, uh, they had uh, gone uh, too far ahead too quickly in terms of having uh, finance trade agreements, technology, uh, uh, technological know-how transfer, uh, agriculture and tourism related uh, agreements, even security related deals and visa free travel. So, uh, so many things had happened in a very, very short time. And now uh, UAE was kind of in a, uh, in a quagmire kind of a situation where it didn't want to uh, uh, ditch the Palestinians, or ditch the uh, people in uh, Sheikh Jarrah, but at the same time, they didn't want to uh, antagonize Israel. So I think uh, such countries, they uh, wanted to play the uh, the middle ground. And they uh, at the same time, they also had very little support for Hamas and their overly uh, uh, Islamic militant agenda. So uh, 
these countries had to come up with strong statements uh, directed at both sides, but at the same time ensure that there would be a quick uh, ceasefire where uh, loss of lives would be curtailed and stopped immediately. So it was quite a, a tense uh, fortnight uh, in, uh, in the Middle East when almost uh, the, uh, even the Organization of Islamic Countries had to come out with uh, tough uh, statements. And uh, they kind of uh, implied, as always, that this was an attack on uh, the Muslims and their uh, places of worship uh, by Israel. But at the same time, uh, they didn't want to antagonize Israel uh, as much as they used to earlier. So, uh, yeah, it was a, a very... Uh, uh, interesting situation for everybody. Now, at the same time, uh, these countries also went ahead and uh, had some strong words for Hamas, telling, if you cannot stop the violence, then we will have to stop all infrastructure projects that we are undertaking in Gaza. So that way, it was very clear that Hamas was not going to get uh, unflinching support from the OIC countries. Again, as I told you, Israel is a friendly country for Israel, and they took upon themselves the responsibility of having, uh, of arranging a, 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 an atmosphere where Israel, the, the PLO and Hamas to come and uh, talk for a long-term Israel-Gaza ceasefire. So this was, in a way, Israel brokered, Israel managed uh, truce which eventually ended the 11-day military flare-up. Uh, at the same time, the goal of the summit uh, now would be to hammer out an agreement on the reconstruction of Gaza along with having a lasting ceasefire deal. Without the reconstruction of Gaza being talked about, uh, any attempted ceasefire may not hold, and that would imply that this kind of a a tense situation might lead to a, a conflict all over again. So I think that way, uh, uh, Egypt had its hands full in arranging uh, a, a, a summit where all the all the stakeholders would come and agree for a ceasefire. Now it was also important to note that uh, both Israel and Hamas, actually, when spoken individually, were very clear in telling we want a ceasefire, we want a stop to these. Uh, atrocities and killings, but uh, the other side does not want to. Now, that way, uh, Egypt uh, kind of uh, had to uh, bring both of them together uh, at the table and ensure that uh, a ceasefire was agreed upon. Also, it is important to note that Hamas actually has in their uh, captivity a few, uh, a few Israeli civilians, and also they have uh, the bodies of two uh, IDF uh, soldiers from, from a long time, maybe around six to seven years. So I think that way uh, the Israelis' uh, demand was that not only should uh, Hamas stop firing rockets at uh, Israel, but also return the uh, civilians that they have held uh, uh, captive and also uh, hand over the bodies of the soldiers. So that way uh, uh, the demands from Israel was quite... Uh, uh, qu quite a long list. In addition, uh, the OIC continued uh, uh, to condemn strongly the bombing of Gaza and also asked for a, a complete and an immediate stop for this kind of uh, bombing. Now, uh, again, as we all know, Israel was in no mood to listen to all this. And they said, we will not stop until uh, Hamas uh, stops firing rockets at us. And uh, the, uh, the whole spectacle of uh, Hamas soldiers or Hamas militants uh, firing from, uh, I mean, uh, taking uh, refuge behind uh, women and children or in uh, places where they had uh, children and women, and then uh, kind of uh, forcing Israel to think twice even before they uh, retaliate and attack back at uh, the uh, Hamas militants. So that was, again, uh, something that the Israelis kept pointing out and telling that, see, this is the way uh, Hamas is actually attacking us and uh, we are sorry that uh, children and women are getting killed in this kind of a situation, but we have uh, taken utmost uh, precautions while uh, carrying out our operation. So that was the kind of uh, 
tit for tat steps uh, uh, that were uh, happening. And uh, OIC again had to chip in and ensure that Hamas uh, listens to their demand and stop uh, firing rockets at uh, Israel. Mohan, anything that you want to add uh, to this or we'll move on? Yeah, I mean, you had a good uh, uh, summary of uh, how the Middle East powers have reacted to the current situation. So, uh, Kishore, next, uh, let's come to the India angle. I know like uh, the Middle East is like far, far away from India, but it do, would have some kind of implications on our foreign policy, which mm-hmm. the listeners would like to know. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, again, uh, although uh, Middle East is quite far away for us, it is actually in more ways than one our most immediate uh, uh, neighborhood beyond our uh, South Asia neighborhood. That's the main uh, focus for any government here in New Delhi. So, uh, and the reasons for that are quite obvious. We've had historical, cultural uh, connections with that uh, region for a long time. Now, having said that, Israel, uh, having said that, India continues to walk the tightrope and uh, tries to maintain some kind of a balance between the traditional support that it uh, uh, puts forward for the Palestinian cause and also uh, rapidly expanding relation that India has with uh, Israel. Now, the point is that uh, although India recognized uh, Israel in 1948, uh, full diplomatic relations uh, uh, got established much, much later in 1992 under the Narasimha Rao government. Now, again, uh, one needs to understand that India was uh, a part of the non-aligned uh, movement and it kind of uh, hesitated to uh, extend hands of friendship to Israel, one. Two, uh, India was uh, committed to the, uh, to the Palestinian cause. Three, uh, any kind of support for Israel would mean that India would antagonize its own Muslim population. So uh, because of all these reasons and also that the uh, Soviet Union and Israel did not uh, kind of see eye to eye, India kind of always dilly-dallied on uh, having uh, full-fledged diplomatic relations until, until 1992. On the other hand, Israel had a small footprint in India through its consulate, whereas India never had that kind of a representation in Israel. However, surprisingly, India accorded diplomatic status to the Office of the Palestinian Liberation Organization in New Delhi as early as 1980, and also treated Yasser Arafat as the head of state once the PLO declared an independent state of Palestine with its capital in East Jerusalem in 1988. So again, uh, as I told you, India was committed fully to the Palestinian cause. So any any support that Palestine wanted, India was always there to uh, support them in any multilateral or international fora. So that way, it was quite a given that uh, uh, India had Palestinians uh, back. At the same time, uh, India also had opened their representative office in uh, Gaza Strip in 1996. Now, when uh, Hamas took complete control of Gaza, this was when uh, Israel backed out of Gaza Strip and the influence of PLO uh, kind of waned away in Gaza, that is when India moved its representative office from the Gaza Strip uh, over to uh, the West Bank in uh, Ramallah. So this kind of uh, also indicated that we would want to deal only with the West Bank uh, slash PLO leadership and not with Hamas, simply because Hamas by then had already uh, uh, become uh, notorious as a militant organization or as a terrorist organization. So India, for India, it was quite awkward to continue to have a representative office in Gaza, and hence they moved it over to Ramallah in West Bank. Again, at the same time, uh, India's ties with Israel also kept growing steadily, uh, step by step with uh, initial baby steps, wherein uh, initially this this kind of relationship was kept uh, a secret, but slowly uh, slowly there was uh, this kind of uh, full-fledged relationship between India and Israel, especially during the Vajpayee government, when we had uh, ministerial visits from India to Israel, and at the same time, we also had Prime Minister Ariel Sharon 
uh, becoming the first Israeli prime minister to visit India in 2003. Now, uh, fast forward uh, 10 years and we had the Manmohan Singh government for uh, two consecutive terms. But after that, we had uh, Narendra Modi becoming the prime minister. And uh, that brought in again a more fundamental shift with President Pranam Mukherjee becoming the first Indian head of state to visit Ramallah in 2015 and uh, Prime Minister Modi becoming the first head of government, Indian head of government to uh, visit Israel in 2018. Now, in between these two landmark visits of uh, President Mukherjee and Prime Minister Modi, India not only received uh, Palestine President Mahmoud Abbas in 2017, but also started to take, uh, started to have a nuanced uh, take on the status of East Jerusalem, even while it reiterated its continued support for a two-state solution. Now, this is the context or this is the background for India's, uh, for how India views Israel-Palestine conflict. But the present crisis kind of brought out the inherent difficulties in, uh, that were there in taking a balanced position. Now, uh, Israel has kind of uh, been supportive for India's uh, needs and India's uh, requirements ever since the Kargil War, which we all know about. And even during the Balakot strike, Israel uh, kind of helped us by providing us the technical and military know-how. So that way, uh, uh, in Israel, it's not wrong on Israel's part to expect an unstinting uh, support from India, but somehow Israel had the reason to feel aggrieved over the statement by India's permanent representative to the United Nations, urging both sides to show restraint, desist from actions that exacerbate tensions and refrain from trying to change the existing status quo, including in East Jerusalem and its neighborhood. The Indian tricolor was conspicuously absent from the flags posted by Netanyahu when he tweeted to thank the countries that had resolutely stood by Israel. Now, what happened was there was a uh, Security Council uh, resolution where, which tried to pin the blame on Israel. And there were a few countries which abstained or uh, not abstained, but opposed this kind of a resolution. And Netanyahu thanked those countries. And uh, not surprisingly, India had actually abstained during that vote. And hence, uh, although in, although Israel looks at India as a great friend, somehow during that in that tweet, Indian flag was uh, absent. Now that was kind of uh, a reality check for how Indian uh, perspective on the entire situation or the entire conflict is. Also, uh, India's response to the ongoing crisis is a good example of how a state that has no direct states in the conflict, but has a lot of multiple indirect ones, uh, ends up balancing the various nuances of this kind of a conflict. Now, again, uh, as I told you, the uh, New Delhi tried to abstain and uh, ensured that in their statement, they tried to uh, support both uh, the sides uh, and their uh, cause for a two-state solution. But uh, I think that's the kind of uh, dilemma that India continues to be in, uh, unless and until India uh, talks, talks to each of them or kind of encourages both of them to come to the uh, peace negotiations and talk out and have a permanent solution, India by itself will continue to be caught in this kind of uh, unwanted uh, uh, crossfire between Israel and Palestine. Uh, Mohan? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was a good uh, rundown of the Indian angle. I mean, we have continued to maintain a neutral position in this conflict. I mean, not surprisingly, as you said on the in the UN Security Council, oh, sorry, General Assembly or Security Council, I forget which one was it, but we didn't uh, take a position as we have done, even though there has been a pretty uh, noteworthy uh, shift towards uh, more of a pro-Israel position in private, but in public, uh, especially in the United Nations, we do like a, more of a centrist position that doesn't upset anybody. And I think even Israel understands our uh, 
dilemma i mean we do have a good strong relationship which uh, overcomes any uh, ill will towards us not voting with them you know for every time yep 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 so uh, mohan you want to talk about the us angle and how it handled the entire crisis especially so because we had a brand new administration uh, in charge and uh, people were wondering what president biden's position would be on the entire uh, middle eastern region yeah so uh, interestingly i mean uh, biden hasn't reversed a lot of the trump's positions with regard to uh, israel especially within the first 6 months i mean netanyahu bb was uh, could have been worried that uh, i mean during the obama years uh, there was more vocal opposition of uh, uh netanyahu's policies mm-hmm. which uh, were completely almost completely disappeared during the trump administration so i mean the problem with by with biden was that there was a lot of pressure once the uh, the conflict started i mean many us uh, politicians especially from the democrat the uh, the progressive uh, democratic part, side of the house they wanted to Uh, ban any more we- weapon exports to us and some even wanted to tag with a apartheid label mm-hmm. on I- israel i mean they are like the more uh, left wing uh, pa- of the party and then but biden managed to successfully deflect pressure from them mm-hmm. in the end like some claim that they did um, manage to exert some pressure for israel to stop the conflict but uh, i mean he took a more centrist position uh, in this now after that uh, i think like uh, secretary of state tony blinken like he traveled to the middle east and uh, i think like he made it clear that he didn't want any more evictions from east jerusalem which could like further create more tensions and also with the palestinian side uh, he tried to make sure that like there is no more incitement to violence or letting violence get out of hand you know mm-hmm. so i mean he tried to like uh, take a centrist position in between like uh, the israeli and the palestinian positions also i mean this, the, the interesting part is that uh, i mean even biden hasn't come out very strongly either in like favor or anti israel position i think is trying to like balance his uh, thing i mean interestingly if you remember during george h w bush and uh, obama they pressured uh, netanyahu to pause the new settlements that are being built in the west bank mm-hmm. uh, but like biden hasn't uh, pushed back so i think he is taking an interesting position i think uh, is neither taking the obama position and nor taking the trump position he is charting his own course in the middle Uh, I mean, even I mean, I know we are doing Israel podcast, but even if you look at the other countries, I mean, some of is taking some of the flavors of the Trump administration and some of it from the Biden, uh, sorry, the Obama administration, and he's charting his own unique course. So, I mean, they'll be interesting to see how all the geopolitical rivalries see, uh, I mean, shape up over the next four years. Kishor. interesting interesting yeah so uh, i think uh, uh, i think you pointed out uh, the interesting uh, facets of the the uh, dilemma that the democrats uh, themselves uh, face when it comes to the middle east and crisis especially so because you have quite a few new young upcoming leaders within the party who are from Palestinian uh, descent, and they kind of mm-hmm. are at the forefront of the global uh, BDS movement mm-hmm. as well. So I think mm-hmm. that way, uh, Israel might uh, feel that uh, the Democrats are not uh, in favor of uh, having a, a pro-Israel stand. But somehow, you were right that uh, mm-hmm. Biden kind of played that middle ground. Uh, I mean, quite well. Biden administration, I think. he did want a reconstruction of gaza which i think blinken uh, alluded to mm-hmm. and they would i think uh, take from other players in the middle east uh, i forget it was like qatar or egypt like would provide like uh, millions of dollars qatar yeah 
yeah qatar yeah, uh, yeah, provide uh, like i think like 500 million dollars something for the reconstruction of gaza mm-hmm. which i think in if trump was still president in the second term i i couldn't see that happening i think he was not very uh sympathetic to the palestinian cause at all so mm-hmm. that's why i'm saying like that that the centrist position is like what biden administration is uh, pulling or like it won't abandon israel like how the far left of the democratic party would do but neither would it um uh, go full pro israel and completely neglect the palestinians how like trump did you know hmm okay so uh, let's now uh, kind of uh, uh, look forward and try to see what happens next Uh, we have seen this kind of uh, pattern of violence leading to ceasefire uh, a brief lull for a few years followed by violence followed by uh, frantic calls for a ceasefire again this is uh, always accompanied by some kind of behind the scenes effort by uh, the us administration so this is a, a, a frequently occurring pattern where uh, even the countries in the middle east also try to help uh, arrange some kind of a quick uh, ceasefire so the pro- the problem with uh, this kind of uh, arrangement is, is is that it it is good only as long as it uh, lasts and every time there is some kind of a uh, flare up happening again either within israel or in the gaza strip uh, the entire ceasefire comes crumbling down and that is why mm-hmm. uh, these ceasefires can never be uh, can uh, i mean they don't have the although they have the potential to be long lasting somehow they uh, kind of uh, fail uh, to uh, to stand up to their name now the issue again is israel always wants uh, hamas to stop uh, uh, sending across uh, or firing across uh, rockets or also building a, a terrorist infrastructure within the gaza strip now at the same time uh, hamas would want to not only uh, win over fatah or, uh, as part of their political struggle to become the single torch bearer for the palestinian cause but at the same time they also want to uh, show to the israelis and to the arabs within the region that not only are they capable of uh, becoming the political flag bearers for the palestinian cause but are also capable of standing eye to eye and uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, replying back to israel in a military language that israel will understand so that was the kind of uh, that was the kind of strategy that hamas has adapted in the in the recent past now this is the kind of extreme positions that both of them uh, end up taking uh, which is quite inimical to the entire a uh, possibility of a long lasting ceasefire at the same time we also have uh, uh, other uh, other players within the region like uh, hezbollah or smaller militia within iraq and syria who have who have kind of uh, come closer and closer to uh, israeli borders and uh, they looking for an opportune moment would not hesitate to convert any limited clash into a wider Uh, israel iran covert war as well now that would imply that the whole region would be involved in this kind of a war and again israel would uh, left to fend for itself uh, against all these uh, enemies who would uh, want to attack uh, in in uh, synchronized uh, moves so that way uh, geopolitical factors are always bound to push uh, israel palestine con- confrontations uh, even in uh, times to come at the same time uh, at the same time again uh, the other issue is that uh, although israel for israel uh, the larger security concerns right now are coming from gaza but it does not end there uh, their their security concerns are kind of spread all, all across the region and again uh, the the gas pipes that come from the mediterranean the uh, the energy security that they keep talking about and also their uh, their borders with syria lebanon the military the militant groups all these play a role in having uh, having a, a, a peaceful uh, 
or or rather let me say this way uh, have, uh, allowing uh, israel to have some kind of a uh, uh, peaceful coexistence with their neighbors so that way uh, this is a kind of uh, continued to be a mirage uh, and it continues to be brittle uh, even in uh, times to come yeah i mean uh, they have the the abraham accords at least they have peace with many of the sunni nations out there but as you said that they have a i mean almost like a hot cold war what you want to call it with the the iranians and the shiite countries out there mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Uh, syria so in some way their problems have decreased with the abraham records and plus obviously they have a i guess a wink wink backhand deal with the saudis like with the saudis obviously for reasons uh, we all know will never acknowledge that so which is interesting that uh, many of these uh, middle east nations especially the gulf nations have sort of i won't say like made peace for a bad lack of better term with israel and acknowledge some of even acknowledge its ex- uh, right to exist <laughs> I, mean, i think it's like some of the it's a, the money factor also like there is a lot of businesses which could be conducted with israel and israel is like pretty i mean uh, developed and strong nation compared to like few decades ago with a lot of uh, high tech industry and uh, growing business i mean interestingly unlike the 70s or 80s when there was a romantic fascination with the palestinian cause i think that it has lost lot of appeal in the especially the gulf nations and uh, uh i mean maybe saudi arabia maybe not so it's a significant shift that uh, where the i mean also the fractured relationship between the hamas and mm. fatah also contributes to it that there is no unified cause and uh, even the uh some of the sunni nations don't know whom to support and i mean it's like a they don't they don't have that support that vocal support that they used to carry maybe back in the hmm. uh a few decades ago i think that that shows i think even you can make a similar case with pakistan like uh it's more about i think money and uh, geopolitics which has taken over versus uh, as I, as i said like the romanticism of uh, yeah. like brotherhood Yeah, yeah yeah i think i think uh, that also uh, is a fascinating point simply because israel continues to point out that there are two factions uh, within uh, palestine and mm-hmm. uh, even if we have to talk peace with palestine we don't know whom to talk with because these two keep fighting with each other and there is no real mm-hmm. representative of uh, uh, of uh, palestine people and uh when somebody tells you you have to talk with hamas then again israel is quick to point mm-hmm. out that hey hold on but uh, hamas is actually a militant group how can we talk to them and whereas mm-hmm. uh, plo or fatah is actually a legitimate uh, elected government uh, within the west bank so that way uh, israel is quite adept at uh, pointing out the schism between the two factions and this also kind of plays out in uh, different ways wherein uh, when somebody when when any other arab nation within the region wants to uh, arm twist israel to go talk with these people then again uh, uh, these countries don't have a clear cut answer as to who should uh, lead the negotiations from the palestinian mm-hmm. side so that way uh, uh, this is kind of an unanswered question which uh, palestinians will have to answer for themselves unless and until that happens Uh, none of them can be in a uh, advantageous position to go uh, dictate terms to israel i mean even if let's say i mean i know they had a charismatic leader like yasser arafat but um, even the the following the movement had back in the day uh, i don't know for whatever reason the many of the gulf nations don't have the same attachment to the cause so do you think it's like the the money factor and the geopolitics which has taken over i mean let's say if yeah, even if yasser arafat was alive to reducing the palestinian cause would be would have such low support i mean when i say low support it's not like zero support but mm-hmm. lower i let's say in relatively lower support than let's say even the 90s i mean when it was always the talk of the town i mean do you think it's like geopolitics and money coming to factor where people would say i would rather 
make peace with israel and exactly, uh, try exactly. to conduct business yep the issue is the issue is uh, uh palestinian somehow don't accept the two state solution in the way it is presented to them simply because uh, that would imply that they would not uh, get control of uh, jerusalem itself jerusalem. and many and many other places so that way uh, palestine Uh, Palestinians would not even extend their hand for that kind of uh, uh, negotiations, which implies that uh, the two-state solution is dead on arrival. Uh, again, uh, the mm-hmm. neighboring countries would not want to delay, delay, and keep waiting for something that would never happen. And that is why uh, real politics and uh, geostrategic realities uh, take uh, take precedence. over the romanticism of a, a palestinian statehood and that is why i think you are right in telling that uh, these countries uh, do realize that uh, we can continue to uh, support the palestinian cause but mm-hmm. at the same time also uh, have uh, flourishing uh, ties with uh, israel i mean they have moved on they have moved on because of the geopolitical realities and exactly yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah Okay, so uh, again, uh, one quick thing to point out is the last time there was some kind of a peace happening during the uh, uh, as part of the Oslo Peace Accord. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, it was a right-wing prime minister uh, in uh, Israel who actually signed that, and Israel, as part of that deal, uh, walked out of uh, Gaza, handing it over to the PLO. But very quickly, Hamas took complete control of the Gaza uh, Gaza Strip. Now. Uh, having having done all that israel uh, israel would have expected some kind of lasting peace but somehow uh, that uh, never happened and we all know that uh, this led to the uh, popular uh, second intifada wherein a lot of uh, palestinian factions uh, started uh, committing atrocities in the form of uh, suicide bombings uh, killing uh, more than 1000 uh, israelis now that was uh, israeli thing that that was uh, uh, i mean uh, uh, a proper uh, uh, back, right back, backstabbing backstabbing uh, by the palestinians okay. and that is why they think that uh, uh, we will not uh, take any peace uh, overtures by the palestinians at face value now uh, again uh, at the same time that has also marked a uh, complete rightward shift uh, in israel mm-hmm. until now uh, which uh, which ended up with uh, because prim- be- be- before the the second intifada mm-hmm. i mean if you see like labor which is a left wing party was in power for most of the israel's Correct. history with some i think likud in between and i don't remember all the parties but then since then it's been pretty much liquid all the way yeah and liquid all the way and labor has been completely marginalized even though i mean as we speak there is a coalition that, where yeah. labor is like i think labor is the biggest partner in that a new coalition and we could have a new prime minister uh, in the near yeah, future um, in his- yeah but the prime minister or the prime minister in waiting are not from labor but uh, yeah i get your point yeah, yeah. Uh, it's now a unity government of uh, uh, centrist and yeah. uh, left wing parties mm-hmm. but yeah mm-hmm. i mean uh, again uh, point taken but then uh, the second intifada and uh, the events leading up to uh, the second intifada of the of the hamas taking over gaza actually ended up uh, forcing israel to take a complete uh, rightward turn so uh, that way uh, even for israeli politicians to say that we will ignore the uh, the support of the people uh, support of the israeli people and extend our hand of friendship to uh, to palestine is something that is unthinkable uh, right i mean uh, after the mumbai uh, terror attack uh, where you had uh, ajmal kasab being caught uh, it was unthinkable for any indian prime minister to tell that we will extend our hand hand of friendship uh, to pakistan so i think it's kind of a similar situation uh, that uh, israel has witnessed in the past uh, decade and a half and uh, yeah at the same time uh, uh, from a from a hamas perspective Uh, they would uh, i mean they have been uh, very very outright and outspoken in claiming that they were actually uh, uh, the victors in this entire uh, conflict wherein they not only showed uh, that they were capable of firing 
continuously uh, rockets into Israel, but also uh, stiffly resist any kind of attack coming in from uh, Israel. And also uh, with uh, Israel running to the U.S., asking for the replenishment of armaments and uh, helping them to uh, restock their Iron Dome. I think uh, Hamas kind of wanted to score uh, uh, score the uh, brownie points in terms of uh, narrative, telling that we, we managed to bring Israel to its knees. So I think that way Israel will continue to uh, push for uh, this kind of uh, hardline stand against uh, Israel, one. Two, they would want to continue to claim that they are the real uh, 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 torchbearer for the Palestinian cause. And three, again, they would want to uh, keep pointing out that we stopped uh, uh, the uh, uni uh, unification of Jerusalem celebrations that Israel wanted to do during the holy month of Ramadan. So I think that way Hamas will continue to score such brownie points whenever possible. And that is why uh, we kind of keep uh, are uh, kind of uh, not so optimistic about uh, the peace uh, that has now been established with the ceasefire. Yeah, I think uh, I think even in, if I read the reports, like Palestinian Authority is not very well regarded by even people in the West Bank. Even in the West, so, yeah. So it, it'll be interesting to see who controls the reins of power. I mean, and one other point I wanted to make is that, I mean, we are in this, I think, very, very well said, like this perpetual style, cycle of uh, violence and ceasefire. I mean, the Israeli strategy where they might have eliminated a lot of the Hamas fighters, I mean the saturation attacks that we saw in the videos was that they could, I mean, the Palestinians, like uh, even with a significant blockade of Gaza, I mean, even the Egyptians have blocked the border to the South with Gaza and uh, Gaza being surrounded by Israel on all, all sides, they still managed to fire literally thousands of rockets. And I'm guessing they must not have been smuggled. So they did uh, home, they did uh, have homemade rockets uh, where with, uh, like stuff it is available in shops, like the the raw material they were managed to procure or get their hands on are literally thousands of rockets. Mm -hmm. And I mean, which would cost probably like maybe $100 each. And in response, Israel had to fire like $50,000, I mean, or maybe $100,000 <laughs> Iron Dome missile. So this is not a sustainable strategy because at some point you might get run out of rockets. And as the American lawmakers have been doing, that might even block shipments to you in the future. So unless you can locally produce or find a cheaper way to intercept. I mean, this might give you temporary relief, but eventually the Palestinian or the Hamas is going to figure out a way to get around the system. So this just gives you a temporary shield. It cannot be a permanent solution right. where you can stay behind the Iron Dome saying, oh, I'll be protected forever. Hmm. Yeah. And also, and also uh, the point that uh, Hamas was trying to make that uh, Israeli uh, retaliatory fire has actually uh, led to killing of women and children. Uh, and again, the numbers of uh, 250 uh, in, and, uh, in and around that number. Uh, actually, mm -hmm. Hamas, what Hamas cleverly uh, hides is the fact that many of these children were actually killed by their own friendly fire, uh, wherein the rockets that uh, you were talking about, the, the cheaper uh, $50 version, they actually mm -hmm. mis get misfired a lot. And many of these Mm -hmm. Rockets actually fall within their own territory, within uh, Gaza. So mm -hmm. I think that that has also been responsible in uh, killing many of their own children. Yeah, but I mean, somehow Hamas kind of, uh, kind of I mean, uh, there, hides that fact. Yeah, I mean, there have been reports that Hamas did use human shields, which excavates the death toll, no doubt. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. mean, also like Gaza being such a densely populated, I think there are like 2 million people living in such a small strip of land. So there is bound to be collateral damage. But I mean, we did see like some videos where uh, in many cases, not all cases, that uh, they would be giving a 15 minute heads up warning to reduce the civilian casualties. They would be given a warning after which they would go and strike the building. So especially like civilian buildings. So mm. I think the the AP or the Reuters like building, which was brought down, which was also used by Hamas was a prime example where they were giving a 15 minute uh, hmm. uh, warning. And in, but in some cases, like people refuse to leave for whatever okay. reason and it, that increases the debt. And obviously the, the, 
the and then the dense urban environment in such a crowded place like gaza would make would make i mean it would be a nightmare for any air force to attack or Correct. armed forces which would cause in some unfortunately some civilian death toll you know which is i mean i don't know how to avoid it but uh, it's a sad part of this conflict you know that a lot of uh, innocent people on both sides uh, lost their lives right right okay so before we wind the uh, wind up this episode uh, let's switch our focus to recommendations uh mohal did you come across anything uh, worth recommending yeah so i came across this uh, uh very good article in the wall street journal by avi bell and uh, eugene kontrovich i think it explains the the legal aspects of the sheikh jarrah neighborhood and why it's been mis highly misrepresented by many in the media mm-hmm. uh with their i mean biases whether okay. uh uh what i say is like whether they are uh, whether they didn't research it or they maybe they whatever they read satisfied the bias so i mean this is a must read for anybody who wants to get into the legal aspect which i did cover earlier in the podcast mm-hmm. so kishor do you want to share anything that you read which is worth recommending to our listeners yeah i actually looked at uh, an interesting blog that was put on uh, the times of israel uh, portal it was by a lady named uh, yael libovitz and uh, the title of the article was david and goliath on the modern state of israel uh, she went on to uh, explain that although israel was uh, being seen or being shown as some kind of an evil uh, power some kind of a perpetrator of uh, violence she actually kind of uh, forcefully put out her point telling that israel has actually been pushed to the corner and uh, it is this fact that they have been pushed to the corner that there is no other way for israel to retaliate but to retaliate with disproportionate force and that is the only reason or that is the only manner in which israel can uh, peacefully exist uh, within the uh, within the larger region of the middle east so i think that was a uh, fascinating uh, article in fact uh, she kind of uh, uh, brought in comparisons with the uh, legendary story of uh, david and goliath wherein uh, she said that uh, 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 david was uh, kind of powerless and uh, helpless at some point in time and uh, you had to bring down the goliath uh, in front of you but now people uh, telling that israel has become goliath is actually wrong because we don't uh, we don't uh, blindly or aimlessly kill people we actually take responsibility for our actions and also pointed out that uh, the enemy does not uh, take any such responsibility so i thought that that was a, a fascinating uh, article to read So yeah that would be my recommendation David and Goliath on the modern state of Israel by Yale Libovitz Okay so with that we come to the end of this week's episode where we looked at the complex and tense situation in the Middle East which has now thankfully been resolved however one thing is certain we haven't heard the last word yet on this to continue hearing about such interesting topics do subscribe to our channel india rising wherever you are listening to us if you are listening to us on youtube please press the bell icon to get notifications about new episodes if you have not left us a review we urge you to do so as it helps other listeners like you in finding us we would also like to hear from you if you have any suggestions on any topics that you would like us to cover do remember that these topics should be directly related to indian foreign policy until the next time this is mohal and kishore signing off mm-hmm.